Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, Jack. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I was suddenly... Welcome in, to... Yeah, yeah the nightmare of trying to talk, talking to you guys. I mean, tell you what, I started panicking because although I set up this number, I suddenly realised I hadn't registered. So when it called through, it's yeah. like, well, you don't oh, have yeah. an account. And I'm just like, oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, shit. A man who called himself an avenging angel was in court today. 41-year-old Jason Vukovic is accused of violently assaulting men with a history of sexual offenses involving children. They kept all of my identification paperwork and anything that I could use to earn a paycheck. They kept all of that, um, saying that they didn't want to assist in my flight with the devil. He says Vukovic broke into his home in the middle of the night and beat his head with a hammer. I was terrified deep down subconsciously of authority or authority figures or or any sort of institution. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part three of my chat with Jason Vukovic, the man coined the Alaskan Avenger who's serving a total of 23 years in prison for the assault of three registered sex offenders, a crime he says he is 100% guilty of. So at the start of this episode, you would have heard Jason and I laughing over an issue to do with my phone number. So I'm going to bring you in on some behind-the-scenes joys of trying to interview inmates in the US. So one of the biggest issues I face with this show is the range of different rules from state to state around me speaking with the men and women I do who are incarcerated. Some states are far easier than others, but I don't usually know what I'm dealing with until we start trying to actually talk. Now in Jason's case, I didn't know what we were dealing with until the following day when we tried to catch up for another chat. Some states in the US will happily allow their incarcerated men and women to pretty much call any number they want. And for the most part, the men and women just call my mobile number. 
without any issues. However, in some states, they require inmates to call a US number. So to overcome this situation, I purchased a US number that gets diverted to me. Problem solved. Well, that is until I came up against a newer prison with newer technology, which apparently can detect these numbers. All right, well, so the way it, the way it works is once once one of these is set up, it is only good for the day of. Right. And then somehow their, yeah, their computer master sensors detect it in the nighttime, and by the following day it'll be shut down. So, oh, so frustrating. Well, at least we got there in the end because I suddenly started panicking, panicking and thinking, how am I going to fix this? And then I said to your sister, actually, I think I, I, think <laughs> I can get another number, so I'll just, I'll just have to keep doing that every time. You did good, my friend. So with the purchase of a new US number, Jason and I could continue our chats. So part of the idea of me speaking with the men and women that I do is not just to get their stories from outside the walls, but inside as well. When they call me, I don't like to just jump straight into formalities of recording. Instead, I like to start with something quite simple. How are you? Now, I'll admit, when I first started this project, I thought that might be a stupid question to ask. I mean, how am I? Well, I'm locked up in prison, I've had my freedom taken away and haven't seen my friends or family for many years. How do you think I am? But the more and more I speak with incarcerated men and women, the more I realise it's an extremely important question and one that usually opens up to hearing so much more about their lives inside those walls. Like with Jason on this particular day, that simple question, how are you, led to a fascinating discussion around his role inside the prison, as well as the continued self-imposed racial segregation and gangs that still go on in prisons today. I'm surviving. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is, uh, uh, prison life is, is the same day in perpetuity over and over again with some variations. So uh, it's been an interesting week because they've reordered uh, the prison a little bit, moving different people, different places. So I've sort of been given a small, younger, wild herd uh, to corral and kind of impress some old school morality on. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting. It's interesting when they task you like that, uh, and just sort of expect that you will rub off on them in a positive manner, uh, because. Uh, it's extra labor for me, but you know what I mean? At least it gives me a little bit of purpose throughout the course of the week. So have you so, actually got a role in which to um, basically keep order, I suppose? Well, so, you know, it's interesting because a lot of these things are self-implemented, okay? So it's just sort of known. Um, and, and another thing, another dynamic about prison, which is very odd in 2023, is it is very race uh, centric yes. still, you yeah. know, so there's certain Polynesians eat at one table, blacks eat at another table, whites eat at another table, or in a prison this size, series of tables. So similarly, within our daily existence, this mod is 140 men, and so uh, factions exist within uh, that group of 140 in this mod. Um, so it's not too difficult for them to tell who sort of the old school uh, white guy is in this mod. Mm. Um, and sadly, sadly, the young white guys are the rowdiest uh, and need the most moral improvement, I would say, of any other bunch. Right. Why that is, I do not know, but it just that is what it is. 
Um, so oftentimes, you know, you can't miss it when they place six or seven of them from different gangs into the mod with me. Yeah. Um, and so things that I do, I'm sort of a self-starter, self-starter type of guy. So, I mean, like, every single day, 7.30 a.m., I get up and move the chair, move all of the chairs and create this large area and sweep the floor. And I run a, a body weight interval workout routine every single day. It's about an hour and a half long. And uh, I've got a million variations, so no two days are the same. And it's an extreme challenge. Um, and for me, that's a really, really good thing to sort of unify people of different races um, or different levels of development because... I really don't care what kind of a badass you are or if you can beat up the entire world, that's cool. Mm. Um, but if you can show up and discipline yourself and make it through one of my workouts and then make it through a series of them every single day, now we're earning each other's respect uh, and <clears throat> interacting in a, in a peaceable and beneficial manner, you know? So I like to do that, and uh, it's a really good way to unify disparate groups yeah um and i've been doing that for three or four or five years in here and it's been really great because i'll get you know a couple of couple of the heavies from each gang will jump in and and get their get their workout in um and then another good byproduct of that is you know sort of builds brotherly bonds over time um and you kind of know your your guys that you work out with and torture yourselves with every single day um and then if you know me or associate with me, I'm always something of a spiritualist, so I sort of ascribe spiritual or higher-minded attributes um, to the workouts, so it becomes something of a meditation, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just really effective, and it's a really good thing. It's, it's a good team-building, you know, spirit-advancing peace builder. Um, so that's, that's one thing right off top that I do every single day. Also doing this show, I learned more and more about the different areas of the US. Like, for instance, with Alaska. Stupidly, I always pictured it to be a place of peace and tranquility, surrounded by snow and ice-capped mountains, a place off the beaten track. But after speaking with Jason and doing some research, it actually turns out to be one of the most dangerous places for crime in the US, with the highest crime rate. Jason talked me through the gang crisis in Alaska, as well as inside the prison, where he himself join a prison gang for sure to the extreme where like if you were to type in crime statistics um you would you would see that per capita now mind you anchorage has a relatively low population in comparison to other major city centers um but per capita anchorage has the highest crime rate i believe it's number one or maybe number two in the united states um, and a lot of that is directly correlated to the extreme presence of gangs. Yeah, um, right. They are large. They are um, everywhere. Um, and the thing is, um, it's no coincidence that that is also uh, correlated with our recidivism rates, right? So these giant industrialized prison housing complexes, basically, bro, they are gang building gang producing factories yeah so you know similar to um universities the military and prisons this is where fraternities are formed and and men under adverse conditions create groups 
um, and, and extensions of groups from the outside world to give themselves a sense of family and purpose and, you know, hierarchy and things like that. And uh, in here, it's, it's extremely prevalent. You know, I'm, I'm probably a rare, you know, exclusion um, as I am no longer a member of a prison gang. I was at some point in my life, but probably... I don't know, eight or nine years ago or so, I realized that, you know, being a member of one was counterproductive. Um, so I stepped away from being in one, um, but now I'm to the stage of the game and I'm respected enough where I'm at least um, accepted and respected by the, the hierarchy or leadership of all of them. Um, and that's sort of a better position to be in because then, you know, I can have an impact at least, you know, in some way um, on the leadership of all of them. And that's, that's a good thing. So did you join a gang when you went to prison or were you a part of a gang on the outside? No, not till I came to prison. Yeah, right. Was that for more for sort of protection in a way because it's safety in numbers type thing? Well, I wouldn't say that as I would say, uh, you know, it's a, again, it's a very strange thing. Now, mind you, I had no prison experience. So when I came to prison for the first time, man, it was a full court press. Like, imagine just being from the outside world, stepping into a prison recruitment drive, you yeah. know, and you've got any number, there's three or four different ones that are prevalent here that, will, you know, come on, bro, you know, if you're smart and capable and, you know, uh, uh, physically strong and things like that, man, they are looking to recruit you tough. Um, so... Over the, over the years, maybe one or two years, I resisted and said no and no and no and no. And then finally, you know, one of them sort of serenaded me in um, to agree to join. Um, and it was under, you know, some sort of conditions. I told them I wanted to, you know, create a nonprofit um, and, and have this group of guys have something on the street when they got released. And, you know, all sorts of, I had all sorts of higher-minded notions in my mind. But over the year, it came to see very clearly that in prison, men's fraternities pretty quickly devolve into, you know, uh, extortion, drug dealing, you know, minor assaults, some major assaults, things like that. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty barbaric. From other inmates that I've spoken with regarding gangs inside prison, once you're in one, getting out is not as simple as saying, I'm not doing this anymore. And leaving, in fact, makes you a target. Apparently, though, Jason managed to avoid this side of getting out of a gang. So, no, again, I was some, something of an exception to that rule. Um, and, and frequently what, what you've just described there absolutely takes place where um, for some unknown reason, if you want to make an intelligent, you know, sound exit from a gang, um, they will then target you or put a hit out on you or, you know, deride you in some way. Um, and then the administration will step in and put you in protective custody. And I have seen that with a number of guys um, but I was able to make my exit in a very visible, uh, I don't know, in a very uh, pragmatic way, and uh, none of those other things were ever triggered in my case. Now, I will tell you, not with the administration, but interperly, I had a lot of, you know, uh, situations that I had to deflate myself individually um, because guys just can't see beyond their own shadow in here, you know, and a lot of them were very offended. Like I was leaving the family, 
or walking away from our family, you know? Yeah. And uh, so there was definitely a number of personal private moments like that in various prison cells. Um, and, and, you know, contrary to my charges, I will tell you this, I am not someone who is, who is prone to fighting. Um, I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. It's, honestly, it's not something I am excellent at. Yeah. Um, but I'm able, able to, you know, do what I need to if the moment comes. And uh, I did have to do that a few times. But, um, you know, other than that, another thing, another uh, key that I will give you, which is very interesting, is that at the top of all of these organizations, all of them, this is unilateral, there is a spiritualist um, or a spiritual leader or director of some type, be it a witch doctor or shamanistic type figure or whatever it may be. And that is universal with all gangs. It is part of gang culture. So with that being said, due to the fact that I'm a well-studied spiritualist and have attained some amount of uh, knowledge or attained a few degrees um, uh, spiritual paths, um, that is something that gave me some authority or ability um, to move away from this gang in particular and then interact with the leadership of other gangs because I'm able to speak the language of whatever eclectic spiritualist happens to be you know at the top or in a leadership position of a different gang so it's kind of an interesting thing but it's very true so we're going to take a short break but when we come back we'll rejoin the story of how jason became known as the alaskan avenger if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, yes, yes, here we are. Here he comes again with his thank yous. 
Honestly, though, each week I am blown away by the messages I receive about this show. So thank you so much indeed for tuning in, listening and sharing this show with people you know. A lot of people, in fact, have reached out to me after listening to this specific situation with their own heartbreaking stories from their childhood, thanking us for sharing Jason's stories. So if you or someone you know needs help, please, please, please don't suffer in silence. Please speak to someone. There are now more than ever so many places and organisations that are there for support. So if I may steal the mantra of a brilliant organisation called Livin here in Australia who make it their mission to break the stigma surrounding mental illness and depression, it ain't weak to speak. So as we know from our previous episode, Jason had met a new love. In fact, the Bonnie to his Clyde. As Jason and his new partner travelled from state to state honing their criminal skills, Jason was not just stealing to pay the bills. He was, in fact, travelling around working legitimate jobs and getting paid reasonably well. So the thing is, too, along with, along with advancing the criminal skill set, my skills, I started out as a house painter and eventually um, I became um, like a, a complex coding uh, Steel Institute of America certified complex coding applicator. So I was doing jobs, bridges, dams, missile silos, um, naval vessels, things like that. So my wages were also going up during the times of year when I was working. Um, so we might go out and do uh, some sort of criminal spree um, once or twice in a year, uh, you know, because it just wasn't necessary to do so at other times of the year. So you were, you still had normal jobs on top of the criminality? For sure. Why, why do you think you kept doing the criminal stuff? Was it purely because of the, the buzz that you got from it? So I believe, I believe there's some truth um, to your observation there, and a person gets addicted um, to the, the instant gratification um, of being able to go out and have something right now that you did not earn, that you're able to just go take. Um, I believe that, that there is an addiction to that sensation that takes place for sure. Um, but truly, after years of self-study and new understanding about the impact on a person's life of childhood trauma, what I genuinely believe is this, and I was not conscious of this at any time during those years, mind you, at any time, I never made these connections. Um, what I believe is that if you're a young child and you are systematically beaten with two-by-fours for years or used as, a, as for someone else's sexual pleasure for years, I think you have a deep-set uh, opinion of yourself that you are worth less and that you are not worth anything and you are not worthy of stability or success or good things. Um, and so I believe in support of that terrible poisonous seed that's just buried in your consciousness, um, you begin to make choices to sabotage your own success and happiness along the way. There's just no other explanation or connection other than that. Um, I have always been a sensitive person, a kind-hearted person, a caring person, um, and, and none of who I actually am really lines up with someone being a heartless thief or a liar. Mm. Um, and so that, that 
what I have seen consistently throughout my life as I look back on it is I continue to make choices to sabotage my own success, leases, loss, uh, homes with mortgages I could no longer pay for, had to pull up roots and move, um, just no stability ever in no city longer than 10 to 12 months ever at any time I would pull up roots and move. Um, and, and to the best of my knowledge, that's the answer to that question. Jason and his partner would soon welcome two beautiful children, a boy and a girl called Milo and Macy. So you've got two kids. When, when did they come onto the scene? What years were they born? Now you're putting me on the spot. Macy <laughs> was born in, two, yeah, in 2000. Uh, Milo was born in 1998. Yeah. Uh, Milo is my oldest. Um, and uh, I will just tell you, like, I, I don't know how this is going to play in, in as far as the story goes, but we had a, a very expensive little home video recorder that we bought with stolen credit cards, of course. Yeah. And I remember videos of us, now the four of us, in the cab of the moving truck, driving to some city or another, laughing, and, you know, to the kids, it was just a road trip and a hotel room, but... Uh, you know, we were just a tight family unit, um, and my little kids were my absolute little best friends um, up until the time I went to prison and they were separated from me. What interested me about this whole dynamic now was that not only did Jason have what appeared to be reasonably steady, legitimate work, but he now had two kids in his life, a life that seems quite hectic. And I wanted to know if at any stage... He was worried or concerned about the fact that his criminal activities could see him again arrested and sent to prison, taken away from something he's really never had as a child himself, a loving family. Isn't that crazy? Absolutely not. Yeah, And wow. it's so, so crazy because in hindsight, any rational, normal adult, you would know, you know, this is going to happen. And I remember having one of those moments after I got arrested and went to jail. And Anna, that was the mother of my kids, was so mad and upset at me. And I remember telling her, like, what did you think was going to happen? We go do criminal stuff. Of course I was going to go to jail at some point. Like, of course this happened. Mm. But again, what happens is when you experience intense trauma as a child you don't develop that frontal lobe portion of your brain it's like getting head trauma it doesn't develop properly so consequences are not even a part of your thought process your decision-making process yeah um, and consequences were just not a part of my decision-making process mm -hmm. and so while rationally yeah sure if, I know if you commit a crime and get caught you could get arrested yeah um, but did I you know, consciously sit and think of what it was going to be like? No. And that's almost the greatest part of it, tragedy of any of this is I told myself I would never, ever do to my children what was done to me. Um, and in a sense, I did something that was equal to or perhaps worse, and that is just completely abandoning them um, because I've been gone in prison. And that was never my intention and never my heart and is never something that I ever wanted to transpire, ever. Mm. Um, but ultimately, sadly, in the end, that is exactly what happened. Um, my son was uh, 11 years old and my daughter was 8 or 9 years old. Um, and I ended up coming in here to the prison and I have never seen them since, ever. You, you've actually never seen your children since the day you went to prison? I've never seen them since. I've spoken to them on the phone, we write letters, but I have never physically seen them again. Is there a reason why they won't come to the prison? 
Well, the first reason is uh, they were all the way off in Butte, Montana, and it just financially is yeah. prohibitive. Yeah. You know, to fly 6,000 miles, and it's a trip, and it's an expense, and it's a lot. Um, the other thing, too, is that when we separated, <clears throat> there was sort of her method for gaining support from her family and everything else was to deride me with me not being there. That was how, you know, she was able to get the greatest amount of support from her family. So I don't think there was much family effort to bring her and the kids up here to see me, you know, and we, we soon, within a year or so of me coming to prison, we became divorced um, because she was, you know, doing her thing with other guys anyway. And, uh, you know, this is just how, like, honestly, this is a further expression of the tree of childhood abuse mm. um, because what it does is shatter families that's what it does just eventually it shatters families and that's what happened here it shattered my family So as we know, at some point, Jason would find himself enacting some vigilante justice against men who preyed on young children. But before he went out of his way to hunt these people down, Jason tells me he had a couple of incidents where he says he was almost guided into these situations. Here he explains one of them. I used to drive um, and haul marijuana from Spokane, Washington to Butte, Montana, and it's about a five-hour drive on the interstate. And uh, I recall, and this is probably when I was 30 years old, so I recall driving on that I-90 back and forth, and I would go late at night, five hours, um, and I did it maybe once a month, this drive. And when you're doing something like that, hauling five pounds of marijuana, it's obviously you're hauling felonies, so you don't want to deviate from the course or, mm. you know, do anything outlandish ever. Um, so as I'm crossing the Washington-Idaho border, the music is pounding. I call it my internal compass, okay? My internal compass, my spirit is just telling me, calling me to pull off at this exit and go up to Hayden Lake, which is about 40 miles away. And uh, I'm resisting it, resisting it, resisting it. And finally, at the last second, I'm like, you know what, fuck it. And I turned left and I drove up there to Hayden Lake. And at this time, uh, there was a guy named Richard Butler who had a large Aryan compound. It had a big barbed wire fence around the outside, guard towers, all that type of stuff. And uh, I slid to a stop outside this compound that I had never been to, um, headlights illuminating uh, a young 15-year-old girl. This is information after the fact, who was pregnant, um, and she was holding a little guitar, and she had a slave bracelet tattooed on her left wrist and hand. And in their culture... It, the tattoo goes around the two middle fingers and then around the hand and the loops around the wrist. And uh, she was standing there trying to escape, and she had been kidnapped and held um, as a sex slave or breeder um, since she was eight years old, and she was 14 at the time. And uh, just weirdly, my spirit had called me there, and I happened to have bolt cutters in the back of my Suburban, and I cut a hole in the in the uh, chain link fence and let her come out. And I drove her back to Spokane and dropped her off at some people's house that were kind of hip to this sort of culture. And, and they took her off to Seattle for safekeeping. But, uh, you know, incidentally, uh, the, the very next day, I knew that I couldn't take property 
from uh, an organization like this and run from it. So I went back to their matriarch's house the next day and told them that I had taken her. And uh, that time I got stabbed in the head, all of my hair cut off um, and nearly died um, as a result of taking their property and then going and telling them I did it and why I did it. Um, but I survived that encounter. Um, and that's something else that weaves into this narrative is that, you know, I think if you are systematically assaulted as a child, you also become sensitive to that energy when it's around you. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, and each and every time I've been called or ended up somewhere at the right time and the right place um, to do some simple act of community service for a child or for a youngster, um, it has cost me something every single time, whether physically or financially or, or now with a prison sentence. Um, it costs you something every single time. Um, you end up these places in a, for, for a myriad of reasons. So when Jason relays this story to me, he's almost quite blasé in the way he mentions that he once saved a young girl from a compound of a bunch of neo-Nazis in the middle of nowhere, only to go back and confront them. Now, I did some quick research and did in fact find information on this compound in the area Jason speaks about. Of course, I couldn't just let us move on from this. And I asked him to talk me through exactly what happened when he decides to go back to confront the matriarch of a bunch of neo-Nazis. What I heard next was like something out of a Hollywood movie. Well, the matriarch is kind of like the grandmother of the family, you know, and if there was a major dispute or, or something, you would go to the matriarch of the family to seek resolution. And she had a home that was outside of that compound nearby. And I went that morning and knocked on the door and she answered the door. Um, and I told her, I took your shit. It was me. I took her. And she said, what? And I said, yeah, I took her. I came last night. I don't, I don't like slavery of any type in any form. And she invited me inside the house and I sat down uh, on the couch and it was a large living room, okay? And there were flags of, of different types on the walls. And over, she made some phone calls and over the course of the next two or three hours, the room started to fill up with just scary looking guys, shaved heads. Um, they had common um, chrome skull belt buckles with ruby eyes or rings that were, that were sort of matching. Um, a lot of them, as it was filling up, a couple of them showed up with dogs. Uh, a couple of them had Rottweilers that they brought with them. So this living room starts to fill up. And then, I kid you not, I see a guy, large, muscle-bound guy, no shirt on, um, shaved head, and he comes around the corner, and I'll never forget his name was Doug Breikreitz. Why I remember his name, I don't know. But he had a, a ritual knife in one of his hands, um, and in their culture, their practice, the ritual knife um, has a handle that's carved out of human bone with sort of demonic imagery on it. Um, and he comes around the corner, um, and it wasn't until I saw him come around the corner with that ritual knife that it really clicked in my mind that they're going to kill me here for an execution. I really didn't realize that until that exact moment. Um, and he came around in front of me, and the first thing he did was smash me in the head a few times with the hilt of that knife, sort of knocking me senseless, and I started bleeding. And he pulled my head forward. I had long hair at the time, and he sort of half scalped me and cut, cut my hair off with the knife and handed it to his witch girlfriend or whatever that was standing there with him. Um, and I raised my left arm up to sort of block my face, and he stabbed me twice under the left arm. 
Um, and I think he punctured the lung or was attempting to puncture the lung by doing so. Um, the third time he stabbed me right in the crown of my head. And if you were here, I'm touching it right now. There's still a giant raised, you know, bump where my soul was cracked um, by that third stab wound. Um, and it was a very surreal moment because I recall after the third stab, um, I lost consciousness. And when I regained consciousness, he had straddled me on the couch. And it was the strangest experience because he raised the knife up again to stab me. And I looked up at him, and it was the strangest thing. There was this shimmery gold type of light that came down and settled in between us. And as I looked up at him, sorry, it's, it's choking me up thinking about this. I told him, hey, Doug, thanks for not killing me. And he stopped right there in mid-swing. And he said, you know what? You're good, brother. Get your shit and get the fuck out of here. And I stood up, and I, my face was completely caked with blood. I couldn't see anything at the time. And I wiped my face off with my shirt and tied it on my head. And I took my backpack, and I sort of staggered out of their living room. Um, and I remember I made it some distance. I didn't know where my vehicle was at that moment because I was just out of it. And I collapsed by some railroad tracks. And uh, I came to consciousness again some number of hours later. It was daylight. My body was ice cold, absolutely ice cold. I was shivering. Um, and I got up and I found my vehicle and I managed to drive all the way back home. And uh, you can imagine the mother of my kids, I'm supposed to be just coming home with weed, another little weed trip, um, which typically was all very positive and lighthearted and wonderful. She opens the door and there I am now, all of my hair butchered off bloody everything else and she's like oh my god what happened to you and i told her i don't even want to talk about it i don't want to talk about it and she proceeded to wash my scalp and we super glued the skin closed over the top of the stab wounds and uh actually within about two days i needed to go to the hospital because um one of my lungs was partially punctured um and uh it was just a profound and dramatic experience i'll tell you that but what is lasting um, um, from experiences, that experience and others very similar, which I can tell you about, is that you cannot deny when your spirit or a spirit leads you to the exact right place at the exact right time. It is just not possible that uh, it was an accident. You have one minute remaining. Yes, and on that insane note, that wraps us up for this episode. But coming up in our next episode, we hear the moment Jason Vukovic became the Alaskan Avenger. There was a girl um, and her sister, and, and I had a conversation with them one night, and she was telling me about this one guy in particular. Um, her sister, who was 14, went to stay at his house, and they got high together for the whole weekend, and the guy raped her, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, oh, what's his name? Next time on One Minute Remaining... One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted, and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.